We're going to do a, a little two-week series this week and, and next week uh, on a passage in Scripture in 1 Samuel. And um, my own story of, of being a young sort of Bible college seminary uh, person, I, I found myself wanting to, to um, you know, first year you come in wide-eyed and, and learning so much, and then second year you hit like this sort of arrogance or pride. Like, I, I, I think I know all the answers. And that, that seed, if left undealt with, can grow. And, and over time I would have been told, Steve, you're going to be significant. You're going to do great things. And I would have started to believe it and sort of puff up my own ego and sort of build for myself like, like a tower of, uh, of significance. And, and when, when things sort of came to an end and I went through a season of, of processing this, it was like the tower came crashing down and I went on a journey for a while of just really good coffee and conversation with a pastor mentor of mine, um, of sort of unpacking what all that is, how it's so easy for theological education to groom a young pastor toward sort of empire-like thinking and, and empire building and wanting to be significant. So we're going to be looking at this passage in 1 Samuel 8 um, that's we're calling uh, We Want a King, because the, the cry of the people in this passage is for a king. We want a king. And so next week, we're going to do something a little different we're going to do a, what's called a fishbowl conversation. And a fishbowl conversation is a little different than maybe a panel where you have a group of people. We're going to have a conversation around some of this, this, uh, this topic. And we all get to kind of watch them like a fishbowl. Um, but this week, I'm going to do more of a, of a traditional sermon, if you will, or teach. Uh, it's kind of set up the conversation. Cue us for it. So we'll read the, the passage. It's in 1 Samuel 8, um, 1 to 9. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son's name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest prophet, took bribes, and perverted justice. So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore, appoint a king to judge us, the same as all the other nations have. When they said, give us a judge, our king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord, but the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. They are doing the same thing to you as they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the king who will reign over them. And we're going to get to those customary rights in a bit. But at this point in Israel's history, they would have had what was, you know, loosely called like a theocracy. They would have had the religious elite, the priesthood, the judges providing leadership over them. And in truth, it wasn't really going that well for them. And they've been in this like spin cycle of corruption and then redemption for quite some time. And, and now Samuel's sons turn out to be lacking in the kind of character you'd want in the, in the leaders you'd want to lead or have in front of you. And so these elders, they do some market research and they note that, hey, all of our neighbors have a king. They have kingdoms. And they appear to be doing, you know, pretty good. So maybe... We should have a king. And they famously, famously cry out, we want a king so we can be like the other nations. And that Samuel feels personally rejected, but, you know, these are his kids. And he's part of this system of governance, which the people are now rejecting. And then he brings these complaints to God, who tells him, you think you feel rejected? They're not rejecting you, they're rejecting me as their king. 
And so if you picture this sort of theocratic system, you would have uh, the priesthood and judges at the top, and then you would have the elders representing the people, and then you have the people at the bottom. And in truth, what they're, uh, what they're asking for, what they are seeing in other nations, really isn't much different. It's just swapping out the titles one for another because really they want a king to be at the top instead of the priests and judges. Then, you know, royal, royal officials will come in and then the people will still be at the bottom. And if we're honest, we probably do the same thing with our titles when it comes to the church. We, our cries for pastors to be at the top. We want a king-like pastor. And this, this is replicated and reproduced in churches everywhere. So a pastor can be the one, like every other church, to lead us and guide us. And as a transitional pastor, my, uh, th- usually the mark of success when I come into a church that has maybe the pastor has left or one of the pastors has left is to help them find a new pastor. And it's to put someone else sort of on the proverbial throne of the church. Crown a new king or queen, if you will. And so our throne room may look a little different, but the outcome feels very much the same. We want a king to lead us, to fight our battles, to go out before us. And I wonder, how did we get here in the church? And so there was a prof- professor of mine in a, in a Tyndale class I took. He once walked us through these terms and titles we see in Scripture and connected them back to their first century roots, And over time, all of these have come to mean something more or something different than their original intended meaning. So let's start with disciple. Disciple, we see it in Scripture. It's used for, you know, those those group of people who would have been following Jesus. And the word methetes, it means means learner. It's someone who has a posture of learning, learning the ways of their teacher, learning the ways of Jesus. And, And maybe this one hasn't changed too much. We still get the core meaning of this. We're still about discipleship. But as we move along, we'll see some of these begin to grow. The next one is apostle, apostolos. Here again, we see this represented in the early church. Uh, over time, it's made its way into almost a prefix, like a, a, a title before, you know, the Apostle Paul, for example. Uh, and you would capitalize apostle because this is a title now. This is something more significant than just a sent one. And before it was just a, uh, before it was a term or a prefix, it was just a, a, an invitation to be sent out, to be missionary, to go and spread the good news. And, and so if we trace this back to our calling as the people of God, to the words of Jesus, we actually see that we are all called to go. We are all sent ones into the world to share what we've been learning as disciples uh, about Jesus. Continue along, we have this word deacon, diakonos. Um, we might remember the story in Acts where the community's bursting and it's, it's growing and they're, they're, they're missing the needs of their people and so they appoint deacons, they appoint servants to come in and administer food. Make sure nobody goes without because they had been pooling their resources for the common good and in there some people were just being missed. Um, and some of the, you know, the widows, the orphans, those on the margins weren't getting enough of the common resources they were all sharing. And so these people, these deacons, these diaconos, they were there as the hands and feet of the community. They were the servants. And so over time, though, this one has transformed to mean more of an operational expert in the church. In many churches, deacons, capitalized, oversee various ministries of the church, the business of the church, the governance the next one is elder. It's a bit more like a bomb, episkopos. It's a big one. Churches have been divided on this one for a while. And uh, it's got a bunch of offshoot meanings like bishop, elder, overseer, superintendent. All of these come from the same root word. And again, we see a few specific instances in the New Testament. Paul tells his friends Timothy and Titus to appoint these people in every place they go, put them in charge, if you will, mostly because Timothy and Titus were going into pretty toxic places. Ephesus had fallen apart. 
the church in Crete had, been, had become a disaster. And so go in and find some people to like give some, op- some oversight and some leadership there. But these terms over church history have become significant. And there isn't a church I know that doesn't wrestle with who these people are, what we call them, what they're called to do, what authority they have. But in truth, the, in truth, the base role is just someone to oversee, to look after, to be so invested that they're like a parent to a kid that is this community. The next one is priest. Um, this one stretches back way before the early church. And while the early church moved away from its Jewish roots and, and priests, uh, we eventually circle back to it in you know, the Middle Ages to have a, a really high view of priests in the church. And guys like Peter would have said, hey, we're all priests. We're like a kingdom of priests, a nation of priests. But we find that over time, Christianity gets tethered up to power and priests become powerful within the church, a powerful title, a powerful role. But if we're all priests and Jesus is the high priest, then we're all people who offer sacrifices. This, this is what this word means, people who offer sacrifices. We live sacrificially. We, uh, we offer ourselves as living sacrifices. We, our worship, our adoration, our praise for God. These are all priestly actions that we're all invited into, offering up sacrifices to the one we love. We get to pastor. And pastor is, uh, I remember this, this professor as he was kind of connecting the dots here. This is a room full of soon-to-be um, pastors. And he gets to this point and, and, uh, and he says, you know, this idea of pastoring, it's really just shepherding. And it really, we've made a bigger deal of it in the course of the church than maybe it was ever meant to be. And, uh, and I remember this one guy put up his hand and he said, Professor, you mean to tell me that I've paid a lot of money to learn that, uh, that to become a pastor, uh, I paid a lot of money to, to become a pastor only to find out that pastoring, as we understand it in the modern church, isn't actually really all that biblical. And, uh, and it was just like jaws dropped. And we were like, wow, okay. So wh- how have we done this where we've elevated this person, this role of shepherding, which is, which is to care for people. We look at Peter uh, you know, Jesus says to Peter, hey, feed my lambs, care for my sheep. This, this like organic, earthy, caring, nurturing role that I think we're all kind of called into. There's a lot of one another verses that talk about what shepherding looks like in community. But somehow we have made this up here, almost like a king. The pastor is the top. How have we got there? This person is now teaching, preaching, leading, casting vision, and so on and so forth. And there's this guy named Chuck DeGroat who uh, he says in his book, uh, when, Narciss- when Narcissism Comes to Church, he says, For centuries, ecclesial systems have been structured hierarchically, privileging people over others, particular people over others. And over time, these organic roles within the church have shifted to become positions of power and influence. And one of the great tragedies is that these, these positions have traditionally been inaccessible to a, a number of people, a lot of people within the church. And then Henry Now, and I love Henry Now, and he's such a great prophet of our time, says the long and painful history of the church is the, is the people who ever and again are tempted to choose love or power over love, control over the cross, being a leader over being led. And he later on in this quote refers to this pursuit of power as empire building. So if we go back to Samuel 1, the Samuel 1 text, because there's more there, um, we will see a, kind of a bleak picture. Again, God says to Samuel, tell them what the king will be like. I want to read this to you. I don't just want to read it over you. You won't find it on the screen. Um, this, this message, and it, it's, it's a bit of a gut shot. So Samuel told them, delivering God's warning to the people who were asking him to give them a king. He said, this is the way the kind of king you're, you're talking about operates. 
He'll take your sons and make them soldiers of chariotry, cavalry, infantry, regimented battalions and squadrons. He'll put some to forced labor on his farms, plowing and harvesting, and others to make either weapons of war or chariots in which he can ride in luxury. He'll put your daughters to work as beauticians and waitresses and cooks. He'll conscript your best fields, your vineyards, your orchards, and hand them over to his special friends. He'll tax your harvests and vintage to support his extensive bureaucracy. Your prize workers and best animals he'll take for his own use. He'll lay a tax on your fields, and you'll end up no better than slaves. The day will come when you will cry in desperation because of the king you so much want for yourselves. But do not expect God to answer. So this, this is a pretty bleak picture. This king is going to come and take and use all your resources. And for his own benefit. He's going you know, to use these things for his own special friends, his own relationships, his own uh, influence. And you'll be no better than slaves. And then the story goes on. And herein lies the people's response. The people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we must have a king over us. Then we'll be like all the other nations. A king will judge us. Go out before us and fight our battles. Samuel listened to the, all the people's words and then repeated them to the Lord. Listen to them, the Lord told Samuel. Appoint a king for them. You can almost hear a bit of sadness in this. They hear this bleak picture and they say, no, you don't get it. We need a king. We must have a king. And then they offer us four main reasons. And I would contend that these four reasons are actually are still pretty transferable to like the way we can find celebrity pastoring in the church. They, they are, will be like all the other nations. Our king will judge us. Our king will go before us, and our king will fight our battles. So we're going to walk through those pretty quickly here. Uh, the first one is we'll be like all the other nations. This idea is rooted in competition, in comparison. It's, it's in a, rooted in a kind of consumer culture. As churches, we look around and see what everybody else is doing. We compare notes. COVID was a really easy time to do this because kind of everything was out there on the internet and on display, and we could check everybody else out and see, what are they doing? Oh, what are they doing? We compare notes. And if we're honest, we as people do this with the church. We might call it, you know, church shopping. Looking around, we compare what this church has to offer versus what that church has to offer. And we compare notes, and, and if you've been around the church long enough, you might even have an internal list of some of your favorite churches. Uh, you know, and then you might compare where you're at currently to that that favorite church. And, and I've been guilty of this too. I had this one really, really formative, amazing uh, church experience in my 20s that I still look back on and, and almost like put them up on a pedestal. Like, oh, they had it all together. We probably do this as well. In, um, in a church called Tove, we've been reading this book over the summer. We finished it as a learning community. But we read about the toxicity of celebrity pastors. And it's easy to fault them because it's, there's a, you know, again, I began with this idea of how in some ways, theological education kind of grooms people for this idea of being significant within church, of being the top dog, of being a king-like leader. Uh, and so it's easy to fault them, but they also, um, the authors here write, behind every celebrity pastor is an adoring congregation that both loves and supports the celebrity atmosphere. The development of a celebrity culture doesn't happen overnight. So we see that both the adoring congregation and the celebrity pastor are complicit in this pursuit of being the best church, the most dynamic church with the best preaching or the best programs or the best worship, the best presentation. Another guy, uh, Tom Nelson, in his book, The Flourishing Pastor, he says that the crowd's applause is intoxicating. 
It's an adrenaline spike. It's a dopamine hit. There's something about that that feels good. No wonder people pursue it. But is it the way of Jesus? And he continues. He says, Jesus shatters any glimmer of this king-like celebrity leadership. So we look around at what other people are doing as our motivation here. The second piece is our king will judge us. And I think this speaks to a longing for someone to handle the really difficult stuff of what it means to be the church. Problem solving, creative solutions, conflict resolution, decision making. If you think about, uh, this is a sample governance structure, pretty average church uh, you would see um, governance on the one hand, ministry on the other. You'd have, uh, you might find deacons and elders in this sort of um, framework. Uh, the business of the church is not necessarily viewed as spiritual, uh, and so you end up with this dichotomy. But that aside, if you take a look, a look at the picture, we see that the lead pastor is central in this. And, uh, and so we see that when it comes to problem solving, typically problems go to the middle. Uh, problems, creative solutions, uh, thinking, planning— goes to the middle. And so the lead pastor becomes the most significant voice in problem solving, in direction and guidance. Uh, then when we see conflict resolution, you don't have to go far to find that many churches have uh, conflict resolution as under the lead pastor. Um, it's actually in our handbook as well. And so now we have somebody who is functioning like a king and a judge. And we go to decision making and we say, oh, now we have a king who is both a judge and a CEO as well, because collaborative decision-making takes time, and we as the adoring crowd want results, we want fruit, so we want somebody to expedite that process. Move it along, let's go. This is why we're paying them. We want someone to go out before us. Here we see another dimension of this kingly call to go out before us, to ride into battle, to lead the charge, to set the course, to cast the vision, to decide where we're gonna be, who we're gonna be and how we will get there. So again, we would see vision comes to the center. And so let's give this person more power. They will own the vision and we'll follow them. And when we've given this pastor so much power, we ought not be surprised when they use that power to build up their own little empire. Uh, Laura and Scott in their book uh, write, in a toxic culture, the celebrity pastor finds a way to make it all about garnering praise for himself. He turns it on him, uh, in toward himself. His vision, his ministry, his success, his glory. And all this power and authority gives our celebrity pastor a platform to champion their cause and make it about their needs. And before we know it, the whole system and the whole culture bends its knee to their will. Lastly, they fight our battles. And I think we, when we buy into this consumer culture idea, we find ourselves wanting someone, our pastors, to be superheroes, engaged in all the areas of ministry. We want them to be the best at everything that it means to be a follower of Jesus. We want them to be engaged in all, in all areas of ministry. We want them to be giants in all the spiritual gifts, the best of it all. And then we're surprised when they act set apart or special. We've put them on this pedestal. So where do we go from here? This isn't particularly the most hopeful sermon, I know. I'm hoping it sets us up for this interactive conversation next week. Uh, because I want, I, I don't want to throw the baby out with the bathwater. We definitely see that pastoring, shepherding is part of the call of the church. But maybe we've done some things to elevate these people to higher power than we need to. So I don't want to throw away pastors. I don't want to throw away leaders. But I'm, I'm wondering, how do we resist the creep of celebrity culture and our own desire to have a king or queen-like pastor who will rule over us? How can we cultivate a better way that includes more voices, that doesn't bend to the will or desires of a single person, that shares the stage, that decentralizes power? 
So that's the focus of next week and our fishbowl conversation. And I hope you'll sit with a bit of angst with these questions. Maybe they'll gnaw at your spirit. Take those to God. Have, have those conversations with God. Ponder them with each other. Pray with, about these. Wrestle them out. And come ready to talk about them next week. Let's pray. God, we do not come with easy answers. And you do not ask us to come with easy answers. And so we pray that as we're in the middle of this transitional season, and we are discerning what your church ought to look like here, what, uh, what heaven looks like on earth as we pray your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven, what, what a picture of power that we see in Jesus looks like. And so we pray that you will, by your spirit, work on us, gnaw away at us, cause us to ask questions, cause us to be a bit unsettled, and yet have hope that we are going somewhere, hopefully that shares leadership better, more equitably, that includes more voices, and that brings your kingdom here on earth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.